I think it's so important that we unlearn and relearn our patterns of thinking and storytelling in this COVID and post-COVID age in a way, actually, that allows us to be in communion with our environment as opposed to a colonialist separation from the environment. And I think that's incredibly urgent. I'm proud to have worldwide renowned art curator and artistic director of London's Serpentine Galleries, Hans-Ulrich Obrist, as my guest in today's episode. Hans-Ulrich is very special in many ways, as with never-ending energy, he's calling out for the urgency to make a contribution to the world every single day. This is exactly what matters most to him. Hans-Ulrich is sharing with us how he already as a little boy curated his child room with art postcards, how he sees his entire life as a chain reaction ever since his first studio visit at Swiss artist duo Fischli Weiss, watching the film Der Lauf der Dinge, The Way Things Go, and how the discovery of art books built the basis for his entire world of thinking and feeling. He has agglomerated a library of more than 10,000 books and seemingly reads as much as he's traveling and connecting people all at once. We need to think whom we can bring together. That's what we need to do every day, Hans Ulrich says. We will also hear from him how the entire art world will change with the pandemic and what it means for the future of personal encounters. I think it's so important that we unlearn and relearn our old patterns of thinking and storytelling in a way that allows us to be in communion with our environment. He states, quoting the self-acclaimed queer black troublemaker Alexis Pauline Gums. Hans Ulrich embodies an inexhaustible source of meaningful ideas to me, and it feels just impossible to do him justice in this podcast. So get ready for a most inspiring journey with a walking powerhouse. Hello, Hans Ulrich. Hello, Christiane. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm so proud to have you here as my guest at Before It's Too Late today. It's an honor to be on your podcast. Oh, Hans Ulrich, you are for sure one of the best known and most successful art curators in the world. You have made over, I don't know, 2,500 trips in the past 20 years. You've been known for traveling very, very extensively, never really staying at one place for longer than one day or half a day. And today, I would really like to learn more from you about a pivotal moment you had in your life, maybe in your early childhood, that created meaning for you. Do you remember such a moment? Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting question, Christiana, because I think there are several moments. And you, I mean, you mentioned traveling. And I think we now return, of course, again, to slower traveling, sustainable traveling. And of course, it all began with the night train for me, because I was traveling all over Europe by night train. And that's where a lot of epiphanies happened, where I went to see artists and I had all my encounters as a teenager, really. But you want to go back probably further to the childhood. And, uh, yes, you are born in Switzerland, in yeah. Zurich, is that right? Yeah, I was born in May 68, 
but not in Paris, but in Zurich, where May 68 arrived actually only in 1980, in a way. But uh, <laughs> so there was no May 68 necessarily, you know, in Zurich. But yeah, I was, I was born in May 68, but anyway, in a small town called Weinfelden. And actually, I was born in a hospital in Zurich, but I grew up in Weinfelden. And I would say there are maybe two childhood experiences I can mention, which go further back than my my studio visits. The first one is certainly when I was like six, seven years old, I was involved in a car accident. And, you know, it was a near-death experience. And I really think that that had a lot of, in a way, changed a lot for me because there was an urgency all of a sudden. And I all of a sudden felt that, you know, we need to live every day to make change, to basically make a contribution every day. And that time is, is limited. Because I think when you, you grew up as a child at the beginning, one never really thinks of death and it seems infinite. There isn't an end to life, right? And so in a way, I think that was a really incredible experience. And I think it had also to do, you know, I was in hospital, I started to read a lot. It was the beginning of my interest in stories. And yeah, I would say, that uh, it was not yet art. Art came a few years later, but it probably was somehow a segue into art, but it also became probably also a segue into an intensity to really think that, yeah, we need to sort of make everything we can out of every single day. There was a sort of sense of urgency maybe which grew out of that experience. So I would say that was the earliest kind of childhood, in a way, memory, but also experience, you know, a very extreme experience. Isn't that interesting that now that you are thinking back to these this event, how much you still remember how it changed you and that it really made you think and stuck with you. You were talking about a near-death experience. So that's really interesting what you say, that you then started to read and started to think maybe more on, an, on a deeper level about life in general. Yeah, because I then couldn't go to school for several months. And then, you know, my mother was a school teacher earlier in her life. And so she then really gave me a lot of books. And we started, you know, she read me stories. She gave me books. It was the kind of beginning of, you know, an interest in, in literature. And the interest in art, I would say, was the second kind of main change or, or revelation, maybe. And that there were basically several kind of moments when I encountered art. First of all, when I was maybe eight years old, nine years old, my parents started to take me to the Stiftsbibliothek in St. Gallen, and that's a monastery library. It's one of the great monastery libraries in the world. It has the monastery scripts, the, the, the original manuscripts, really from the 10th, 11th century with the famous St. Gallen cloister plan, the monastery plan, because the monastery was destroyed over time and then rebuilt as a Rococo space. And I remember, you know, these almost boise and felt shoes one has to wear, and then these gloves, and one could actually on a poem and look at these old manuscripts. And for me, that was like time traveling. It was like sci-fi inverted. You know, it was like you mm -hmm. traveled into these centuries where these books were written. And I suppose that that, I was totally obsessed by that, the beginning of my obsession for books. I mean, I've always been surrounded by books. I've always, you know, I have a ritual to buy a book every day. And at the same time, I've edited and written, you know, many books. And I always think that that sort of began there. And also that sort of encyclopedic drive of knowledge fascinated me as a child, this idea of wanting to know everything, being driven by curiosity. And soon after, my parents saw I had this interest in, in a sort of culture in a wider sense, because I, re I reacted so much to this monastery library, they took me to the Kunsthaus in Zurich. And there, 
I actually saw for the first time the Chacometis because the Kunsthaus Zurich has this extraordinary Chacometti collection, one of the biggest in the world. These, uh, Franz West called them the long and dünnen figuren, these long, thin figures of Chacometti. <laughs> and strangely, I was magnetically, you know, attracted to these sculptures. And that's then the beginning in my early teens, you know, that I began collecting postcards. So it's almost like an imaginary museum. You know, I only found out later about, about Malraux, and I found out only later about Abi Warburg. But it was kind of like an encyclopedia of postcards, and my parents had to buy me all these postcards in all the Swiss museums and, you know, bookstores, wherever I could find postcards of artworks. And I would have in my Kinderzimmer, the children's room, you know, I would have a portable museum. I would have, I would make installations of these postcards. It was maybe the beginning of curating. I kind of curated somehow postcard exhibitions. And uh, then, you know, we visited museums. And then I would say there was another kind of revelatory moment, which was there wasn't a gymnasium, there wasn't a high school in Weinfeld. I had to go to a high school in Kreuzlingen. I had to take the train every day. And when you arrive in Kreuzlingen, you know, it's a walk from the railway station to the school. And I would always, also during lunch break, I would go on walks to go back to school afterwards. And I would always pass by this very strange house, on my mainly on my lunch walks. It was a strange abandoned house in a park. And one day I asked the teacher at school, you know, what's this house? And she explained to me that it was actually the clinic of the famous Professor Binswanger, who, of course, is the doctor on whom Foucault wrote his early books. And it's the clinic where basically Abi Warburg was a patient. It's the clinic where Abi Warburg wrote The Serpent Ritual and actually presented that work for the first time to an audience of patients. And later, of course, it became, later on, it became this you know, famous book. And so I kind of, for the first time, saw, you know, there is art history, there is actually writing on art, and that became very important. And then soon after, I sort of so I started to kind of buy lots of books and borrow, went to the library and get a lot of art history books. And then, and kind of autodidactically learn about art history. And then I came across a book of Francis Bacon and David Sylvester, and that was a really important moment because suddenly I realized there is actually the voice of the artists. It's possible to meet the artists. It had not occurred to me before. Then I read Vasari, Lives of the Artist, Lives of the Architect. And of course, this you know, idea, this Renaissance idea of art and architecture not being separated, the art forms being together was fascinating for me. And again, you know, Vasari talked about these artists he had encountered, the artists whose life he had studied. And that, I think, somehow then prompted this idea of wanting to meet the artists. And uh, so when I was about 17, I was still at gymnasium, I was still at high school, I started to ring up artists and go to the studio. The first one was Claude Sando in Luzerne. I had seen his exhibition in St. Gallen. And the second studio visit was Fischli Weiss. So you and just rang there and said, hello, I'm Hans Ulrich. I want to see, uh, see you in your studio. Or did you have Yeah, I'd look at the, uh, at the telephone book. Yeah. And I just would ring, yes, I'm a teenager. And I'm obsessed by your work, you know, could I make a studio visit? And so, and officially my studio visit, I always say, you know, I was kind of born in May 68 in Zurich and I was reborn in May 85, I would say, when I was 17, the studio officially Weiss. I had seen their exhibitions and their books. And when I arrived in the studio, they were actually just about to start work on this Lauf der Dinge, the way things go. Their extraordinary film, it's a chain reaction, a series of everyday objects and machine parts roll. They topple, they burn, they spill, they propel themselves forward. 
and he creates these extraordinary, you know, chain reaction of miraculous causes and effects, and it seems never to stop. And so, you know, you have to imagine I'm in this studio, Pio Corradi, the great director of photography, is filming the artists are making this chain reaction about contingency and and entropy. It was an amazing experiment. And I kind of knew that that's what I wanted to make in life. That's when I had the revelation in a way that I wanted to work with artists. I wanted to be useful to artists, enable things. And I wasn't, you know, I knew I wasn't an artist myself, but I knew I wanted to work with artists. And I wasn't at that time sure how exactly that could work. But it's in these conversations with artists that I kind of slowly then find out how I could be useful. That is just a fantastic sharing, Hans-Ulrich. I love the storyline along which you explain how you became the person, the special person who you are today. When you say you were reborn the moment when you entered the studio of Fischli Weiss, could you attach a feeling to that moment? How did you feel? Yeah, I mean, I was incredibly excited to, first of all, listen to the artists and they you know they obviously i had seen a lot of shows i would travel by night train and it was the first time also somebody asked me to explain actually what i had seen and why i found something relevant and why not and so it was you know it, it was like incredibly important for me to articulate also what i had been doing but at the same time i think the excitement was of course in what i saw not only what i heard but what i saw and you know to all of a sudden see these equilibrium photographs animated in a way, set in motion and have this incredible chain reaction. There was something incredible, alchemic and magical about it. This idea of seeing how a work happens, seeing the process and thinking about, and I was actually thinking, you know, how would it be to work with artists, to organize exhibitions, to be involved in, and, and that's actually like then, the whole thing is that from this moment onwards, strangely, my entire life was a sort of a chain reaction, like in the film Officially Vice, because They then said, you should go to visit Alighiero Boetti, the late Alighiero Boetti in Rome, the great artist associated with the Arte Povera movement, but transcending it, you know, he's a, a great serial inventor on these extraordinary Arazis, these tapestries in Afghanistan, later on in Pakistan. An artist who really very early on, in this super premonitory way, worked on globalization, non-homogenized globalization, a sort of a, an exchange, really, more than globalization. And so officially, I sent me to him. I took a night train. You know, this idea, I think, of slow traveling, we need to rediscover because I would be on trains for weeks and have, have this feeling of slowness. I had time to think about what I had seen. I, I had time to arrive. And I would arrive in Alighiero Boetti's studio. And he went straight to the car and he said, you know, what, I, what do you want to do? What, you're so young. What, you know, and, and I said, you know, and so again, I had to articulate. I said, I want to be useful to art. And he said, you want to be a gallerist? I said, maybe not working in the commercial sector. He said he wanted to work in the museum. And then he all of a sudden started to, to talk. And he said, basically, he said, most curators come to me in museums and they say, we want this, we want that. And no one really ever listens to artists. No one ever listens to me. And, and he said, you know, basically, I would very much like to advise you that you listen to artists and what are their dreams, what are their unrealized projects, what are their utopias, what are the things they would love to do but can't do within the parameters of the existing art world. And he said, you should always ask the artists these questions and then you could be useful. You could help them realize these unrealized projects, you see. And from that moment onwards, it became the thing. I was this teenager who would travel by night train and I would visit these extraordinary artists and they would all give me a task in a way. And uh, I would then go to Cologne and meet Gerhard Richter 
and, and Rosemary Trockel, still when I was 17, was the same year, again by Night Train. And, uh, you know, Richter and I immediately spoke about Seals Maria, because, of course, I spent a lot of time as a child in the Engadine. My parents would always go on holidays there. And Richter was magnetically attracted to the Engadine and created these photos continuously, actually, which are partially repainted and entered the Atlas. And we said, you know, these photos are extraordinary because they combine his abstract work, his photo paintings, all in small formats. And they've never been exhibited outside the Atlas. It was an unrealized project. I said, let's make it happen and let's bring these photos to Sils Maria. It then took me several years to convince in Sils Maria the Nietzsche house. And so I learned from Gerhard Richter, you know, very much on the job, how to install a show, how to find a title for the show, you know. He called it Sils. He didn't want to call it Long or Sils Maria was too long. A very laconic title. I learned so much again in this experience. And Rosemary Tockel also gave me great advice. She basically said, it's wonderful that you visit artists who work now, you know, contemporary artists, emerging artists. But she says there are all these extraordinary pioneers who are forgotten. I mean, Louis Bourgeois had just started to be recognized. But she said there are many more artists. And you should go from city to city and ask who are these pioneers. Many, very often it's women artists who were not recognized. And she said you should ask who are these artists who need more visibility, who are these forgotten artists. She said, I would love to do it. I don't have the time. She said, that's your task. Again, I was given a task. And I've done this ever since. You know, that led to all these exhibitions, for example, at the Serpentine. So in a way, that's why there wasn't like that one moment. There were like many moments in a way because it was a chain reaction. Hans Ulrich, when I'm listening to you, I'm always so inspired by your incredible energy. You have this amazing energy that seems to never be down, never low, always on on high speed, I would say. And I would like to come back to your image of the night train, which is not an image, but it's it is a tool in your life that is transporting you from one place to the other. In a way, it's also an image that represents your personality, I would say, because it's all about movement. You are a human being who is always on the go, always moving, fulfilling one task after the other, as you just said. I'm curious, aren't you afraid sometimes to miss the present moment? No, I think it's really important to de-link, you know, and, and we live in a world of permanent connection through social media, through all these devices, through the exponentially growing informations which surround us. And for me, art keeps creating these moments of delinking. And the night train stands for this delinking, you know, because you basically are in this space for many hours and can think and can write. It's a very free space. And of course, you know, particularly at the beginning, there wasn't a mobile phone. When in the 80s, I started to do this trip on the night train. So literally from the moment I left the city to the moment I arrived in the city, I was delinked. I just was by myself and I could read and I could write. That's how all my first books were written. So yeah, I think the night train for me stands for this delinking also. It stands for the movement. It stands for a slow, a sustainable movement also. I think we need a movement towards night trains. I hope that, you know, Austria is doing it, Sweden. You know, I think we need more. We need Germany to join. We need England to join. We need France to join. We need this pan-European network of night trains again because many of these night trains had actually disappeared since my childhood and we need to reinstall them. So the night train is certainly... Is certainly that, but it also stands, I think, in a way, yeah, it's movement, but it's about create. I mean, I've always seen my work as, as uh, which is why your question is very interesting, as, as in a way, 
looking for this point where all the world's cultures and all the world's imaginations can meet, you know, and where they can hear one another. I think my work has a lot to do with listening. I mean, the 20th century has been full of manifestos. And I think, I mean, Tino Segal once said, maybe we need more conversation in the 21st century. I always think we also need more listening in the 21st century. And this idea of actually, you know, seeing my work as a junction making, you know, I'm not only making exhibitions, that's only a small part of what I do, because you asked me before we started what is important for me. And for me, one of the most important things is to, is to make junctions, to bring people together, to bring artworks together. You know, at the end of the day, it's all what actually maybe the most important encounter of my life taught me. And that's Edouard Glissant, because on one of my night train trips, you know, I went to Paris and uh, I, through Agnes B, actually, the fashion designer and collector and philanthropist, I met Edouard Glissant because she knew that I had read him and she was friends with him since the 60s. And it became really, in a way, the toolbox. His books became the toolbox for my my life. I, I have them always in my luggage. I have them always when I leave the house. I read every uh, yeah I read every day yeah. I, I read every day 15 minutes of Eduard Lister. I think that he he should be more translated into German dozens of his books are not translated yet I I, I am obsessed by Eduard Lister. Cool so I will definitely put that in the show notes then Yeah we could bring why? we could have a list of titles yeah yeah why what's important to you in when you read in his books every day for 15 minutes Yeah it's interesting Thank you for this question, because ultimately it brings us right to the core of your big question of your podcast, you know, what really matters, because I really think that Glissant taught me, in a way, what matters in my work and how beyond, of course, and in addition, one can say, to all these amazing things I learned from the artists, which are so important, but in a way, each of these artists gave me a task, from each of these artists I learned so much, but with Glissant I then learned, in a way, how one could maybe bring it all together. Right? And, and I think Edouard Glissant consistently said that what matters is the production of reality. I've actually just written a text now during this new lockdown about him now and why he's important now. And, you know, he was a member of the resistance who spoke out in favor of Martinique's independence. He was a friend of Franz Fanon. And then very importantly, as a, as a philosopher, as a public intellectual, as a poet, he founded the Institute Martinique of Studies, the, the Institut Martinique d'Etudes, where he wanted to do a school as a, a poet and as a philosopher. He wanted to invent a school for change and actually implement Creole into a school system which was dominated by, by French. And what is so interesting is that after this, he started to conceive of a museum. He wanted to build a museum for Martinique, which remains unrealized. But he's such an incredible source of inspiration, and many of my exhibitions are based on that. So he wanted to create a museum which would not only point at urgencies, but find agency to respond to these urgencies. So he imagined it to be a quivering place which transcends established systems of thought, and which is actually looking for this point, what I mentioned before, where all the world's cultures and all the world's imaginations can meet and you know hear one another. And within that museum, you find a lot of you know, toolboxes, you find the idea of the archipelago. The archipelago, he felt that continents reject mixings. He says we need an archipelago, a blend of cultures. We need basically archipelic thought, which endeavors to do justice to the world's diversity, which is the opposite of this absoluteness of continental thought, and which tries basically not to force its worldview to other countries. Uh, which counters the homogenizing forces of globalization. 
And I think that was somehow the most important thing Lisson taught me because, I mean, you and I, and we, we are clearly of a generation who experienced an ever-increased globalization in the 80s and in the 90s. And, and I think this globalization is not the first globalization, but it's a globalization which was fooled by technology and was extremely extreme and even violent with a lot of homogenizing forces, which as Glissant shows, lead to extinction. They lead to the disappearance of differences, of languages, of species, and the extinction crisis we're living through now. So he said we need to resist this homogenized globalization. But he gave me a, a second very important thought. He said, not only does your work have to resist the homogenizing you know, globalization, but it actually also needs to resist the counter-reaction, which is a new form of refusal of the global, a new nationalism, a new localism, a new lack of solidarity. And he said, we need to resist that as well. So we need to kind of invent something which he called mondialité, which we could in English call globality, which is actually furthering a worldwide exchange, but recognizes and preserves diversity and creolization. And I really think every morning, you know, how can my exhibitions, how can the institutions I run, I was initially at the Musée d'Art Moderne in Paris, the City Museum, and since 2006, I, I, I run the Serpentine. And, and, and basically, being the artistic director, initially I was the co-director and now the artistic director of the Serpentine. I also ask myself every morning, how can the institution, you know, contribute? to this idea of mondialité. How did COVID change you as somebody who is on the go like no one else, taking so many night trains and now not anymore, at least for the time being? What did COVID do with you? Yeah, I had already um, pre-COVID decided to radically reduce my traveling and also do much less trips and make longer trips so that they actually are more, more sustainable. So to radically reduce the, the, the number of trips was one idea. But of course, COVID uh, completely um, made you know that stop, made any form of travel stop. So, I mean, I would say Zoom has entered, of course, all our lives. And I was at the beginning not really sure how to use it. I got somehow partially used to it. It's, you know, for meetings, because of course we do all, I mean, Bettina Korek, our CEO, and I do all our serpentine meetings, you know, by team or by Zoom. And as all the meetings go ahead, you know, that's an important part of the day. Then, and yet, is there something that you are missing? Yeah, of course. I miss the encounters. I miss the dialogue. I miss the exchange. I miss the, the studio visits. I miss terribly, you know, the studio visits. Uh, I mean, Christian basically says... Uh, I can change through the exchange with the other without losing or diluting my sense of self and it's archipelic thought that teaches us this. And, you know, this idea of the encounter with others is, is what I'm miss, missing most. It's, it's the encounter also with artworks. But I tried to use Zoom in different ways than just for the meetings. So I started to think, I mean, studio visits, as we spoke about earlier, are very much at the kind of car what I do. It's all everything is nurtured by the studio visits. I just cannot continue to work if I don't do studio visits. So then I thought maybe I could actually make Zoom studio visits. And and you know it's actually really interesting that I, I mean I would never claim that a Zoom studio visit replaces a studio visit with the artist because of course you don't have that one to one encounter, but also you don't have the 
the experience with the work. You don't have the, the physical experience mm. with the work in the space. You don't have the tactile experience. You don't have all of these aspects are not there. The, it's a very multi-sensory thing when you go to an artist studio, when you go to an exhibition. But I must say that it's interesting. I mean, I started to now actually do my weekly column, which I do for Das Magazine in, in, in Switzerland. I started to do it on these virtual studio visits because in a way, a few weeks ago, I, I met John Quick to see Smith, an extraordinary artist in her 80s who lives near the desert, near Santa Fe. It sort of made it possible for me to visit also more remote studios in the countryside because I, I sort of became aware how much I function in cities. My entire life has been in cities. You know, I lived in Paris, then in London, Milan, plays an important role in my life, of course, New York, Beijing. You know, I made a lot of research also in South Africa. All of these, but you're always in cities, you know, Cape Town, Joburg, studio visits happened, uh, of course, Vienna, you know, many, many cities. It's, a, it's an archipelago, but in a strange way, never in the countryside. And I mean, not only have, has the countryside become more important, I think because a lot of people work remotely outside cities, but the countryside has also been, you know, it's the place where a lot of artists work and live, whom I had never the chance to encounter. Until now, all of a sudden, through these Zoom studio visits, I have incredible new encounters. And also, the Zoom studio visit very often is the artist actually, you know, would, with the phone or the tablet, walk through the studio, zoom into the work, show me notebooks. So it, there is an incredible dimension to it. Again, it doesn't replace, but I, I somehow think I managed to use Zoom in a, for my work, you know, useful way through this new medium of what I call my Zoom studio visits. I think, I mean, your question about what it changed, I mean, there's so many things which changed. I mean, for example, a lot of walking has happened. You know, I go on these endless walks. I started to have a lot of conversations with animals and ask them oh, about that. Is their, that is interesting. Yeah, I ask, I ask them about their unrealized project. It's my TikTok. <laughs> on Instagram, you know, I had to also reinvent my Instagram because obviously my Instagram had a lot to do always with studio visits, artists would write handwritten notes for my project against the disciplines of handwriting. So I started to kind of bring the Do It project back because I felt that that would make a lot of sense during the lockdown because we are somehow always with the screen and the Do It project can virtually work, but it gets us beyond the screen because we can actually do these projects. You know, we can realize an Enzo Mari table at home because he transmits through his instruction the knowledge of how to do a table or we can do a Franz West Passstück, you know, how we can do Louis Bourgeois' piece and socially distance, you know, smile at someone and what is her instruction. Or, you know, we can do Precious Ockermann's instruction, how to actually do a garden, do-it-yourself garden. So in a way, it's interesting, I think, that all of a sudden on my Instagram, you know, it became this do-it archive and we commissioned a lot of new do-it instructions because I had realized during the first lockdown that a lot of people had reinterpreted these do-it, you know, these do-it pieces. So then the walks, I mean, what also changed, I think, I mean, a lot changed, I think, in relation also to us thinking about what we can do for someone else, you know, because it's a moment where we need to support each other. And I think that's a question, a ritual. I think we should every day think what we can do for someone else. And then, of course, it raised the question about being rooted, you know? And it's interesting because it brings us back to Glissant, as always, I come back to it. And at his 80th anniversary, I will never forget that he was in a jazz club in Paris. Edouard took me by the hand. and He said, we went through the entire space from one you know, side to the other. He said, I have to find now Mantia Diabara. I can't lose you. So he pulls me through the space. 
And finally, we find in the crowd Mantia Diavara. He says, and it was the, one of my last meetings with him before he passed away. He says, I want the two of you to be friends. And that's exactly what I think we need to do every day. We need to think whom we can bring together because it makes such a difference. Mantia is now my very close friend. I'm deeply grateful to Edouard for this introduction. Uh, Mantia and I are working on many Glissant projects. And it's Mantia who told me what Glissant had taught him about being rooted. And I came back to that during the lockdown because being rooted in one's city, in one's country, in one's culture is, of course, important. But as Glissant taught us, and Tiawara channels it, it's only important as long as it does not lead to the exclusion or an annihilation of other people's roots, or as long as it doesn't lead to the hierarchization or election of some roots or cultures over others. So Glissant said that we need to celebrate roots, but it has to be roots that expand elsewhere, roots that touch each other, roots which are not singular roots, but roots that cover and protect some others. And I think that's so beautiful, you know, because it shows us also how wrong these new forms of nationalism are now, which we can read about every day in the newspaper, which have become so much worse during the COVID. So I think, yeah, this question of being rooted in a Glissantian way is something I've been thinking about a lot during the lockdown. Hans Ulrich, this is so powerful. And it's not only incredibly beautiful, but also very, very meaningful. And I'm sure you will be inspiring many listeners with, with these thoughts, especially in times of isolation and loneliness and all that comes along with the pandemic. So thank you so much for sharing what's important to you, what really matters to you, and how you, Hans-Ulrich, create meaning day after day in your life and in so many others' lives. Thank you so much for being my guest today. No, Christiane, thank you so much for this great conversation. And actually, maybe there is one thing I wanted to, to mention at the very end, which I think is also super urgent. Yeah, really urgent in relation to your question about the lockdown and about what changed and what is important. I think the environmental crisis, the extinction crisis, I mean, Bruno Lato said we should never go back to normal because the normal is the total destruction. So I think we should be aware now, once hopefully we are in a post-COVID situation, that we need to learn from that and radically change, radically change our economy also. Because I think it's super important to go back to Kate Rivers and to Kate Rivers' amazing donut economy. Because she says like a donut we need to think about and we need to take into account that there are the planetary boundaries, but there are also the social boundaries, so there's the inside and outside boundaries, and we need to be to be aware of those, and we need to sort of take into account that care work, which is never taken into account in our economic systems, is so important. I think that's also what 2020 should teach us, and we need an, an, a, a completely different economy, which can actually, this goes very much back to the beginning also of my university studies, because I studied with Professor Binswanger, Not the Binswanger from Kreuzlingen, who, whose patient was Warburg, but another member of the Binswanger family who was a great pioneer of bringing economy and ecology together. And he often said, you know, we need to bring, to get the ecological dimension strongly into the core of the economic system. Otherwise, the planet will be destroyed. And so I think we have the opportunity now, in this time, actually, as a species, to unlearn and relearn our patterns of thinking. And that's something which... Alexis Pauling Gams, which was one of my favorite books I read in 2020, says in this beautiful book, DUB, D-U-B, which is the book 
about Silvia Winter. Winter is someone who is studying multiple histories of knowledge. And this is really almost like Lisson. This book has become a book I take everywhere. I read all the time because I think it's so important that we unlearn and relearn our patterns of thinking and storytelling in this COVID and post-COVID age. In a way, actually, that we unlearn and relearn our own patterns of thinking and storytelling in a way that allows us, as Alexis Pauling Gam says so beautifully, to be in communion with our environment, as opposed to a colonialist separation from the environment. And I think that's incredibly urgent. I cannot think of any more meaningful closing remarks, Hans Ulrich. Thank you so much for No, thank you so much. And I hope we can see each other soon in person. I really enjoyed this profound conversation, and I hope you did too. For more episodes of Before It's Too Late, make sure to subscribe. If this episode spoke to you, consider sharing it with a friend or loved one you think might benefit from it. Thank you for listening.